Brothers, if you would join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians two. I've got to be honest with you and uh, tell you that uh, I don't feel like I have near as much uh, to say um, after Kyle spoke. Uh, where, right here. Where's Kyle? Where is he? I'm, I'm sorry, over here, brother. That was a, a breath of fresh air. Thank you. Um, and um, I'm serious when I say uh, I think a lot of what he was talking about is uh, certainly has some roots in this passage that I want us to study here uh, together. Apostle Paul is the human author, but he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. So this is God's word for us, First Corinthians 2. Verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. <clears throat> I said to you uh, in the study of chapter 1 that... Um, there wasn't a ton of application, at least as we define it in contemporary preaching circles. We've developed somewhat of, a, uh, I think, a God uh, of application. It's taken on a life of its own uh, and uh, uh, become um, something very narrow uh, in uh, preaching and teaching God's Word. Uh, it uh, it oftentimes is limited to um, you know what I might describe as practical application, giving your people something to go home and do and to put into practice. Uh, and sometimes the word of God isn't uh, uh, compelling us to apply the truth by doing something. It's it's compelling us to do something, uh, to, to apply something by, by thinking differently. Uh, and I would contend that that is application. Uh, when we are shaping people's worldview, uh, we're helping them to think Christianly. We're helping them to think through the lens of the gospel. Uh, that's application. Whether we go home and do something uh, by way of a practice uh, may not always be the case. And I think chapter 1 may be case in point. There's a lot of theology there, the theology of the wisdom of God in the gospel, in Christ Jesus. But when we come to chapter 2 in these first five verses, uh, I think what we see the Apostle Paul doing is saying, let me tell you how I 
put that into practice when I came to you. Pastor Jim mentioned Acts 18 a little bit ago, uh, which is the background of this passage of Scripture. That's when the Apostle Paul went to Corinth. Um, we need to be careful uh, not to think that his ministry was limited to the evangelistic proclamation of the gospel. He was there a year and a half. Uh, and he was uh, preaching and teaching to believers there uh, in much of that time. And so whatever it is Paul is talking about here, he's, he's not limiting it to his evangelistic efforts. Certainly that was true. If I'd put a title to chapter 1, I probably would call it something like Christ our wisdom for his power and glory. And that's what we looked at. Looked at how God had has used this gospel uh, to reveal His power and to protect His glory. Uh, I know those are lofty ideas. We want to think sometimes, okay, it's just about getting your sins forgiven and getting the hope of heaven. And that's a very, very, those are very, very important pieces of the puzzle. But as we saw in chapter one, uh, there are also some very, very lofty, eternal, and I think practical uh, implications to uh, what God has done in the gospel. If I was putting a title to these first five verses in chapter two, I, I probably would say Christ our wisdom in our preaching. Now, uh, I'm very excited about that. Uh, it, it's not something that I think is forced on this text. I told you that all of this stuff that Paul was saying in chapter 1 was not limited to preachers. He's talking to the Christians at Corinth. They're the ones that were rallying around the, the preachers. They're the ones that were on the verge of divisions and factions in the church. They're the ones that were uh, sitting on the, uh, you know, the edge of the cliff of embracing uh, the worldly philosophies and rationales and logic of the sophist and other great thinkers uh, uh, of, of their day and time. And, and the book of 1 Corinthians is a letter to the church at Corinth. So he's, he's speaking to, he's talking to all of us as believers in Jesus Christ. But I think when you come to chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, that Paul very specifically is talking about how he practiced that in his preaching when he came to Corinth. There are a number of words in just these few verses that would indicate that in verse 1. He talks about proclaiming to you the testimony of God. He's talking about his speech and his wisdom. Uh, he will go on uh, to uh, talk about his speech in verse 4 again. And, there's, and, and, and then also the call for response or the end game of the response in, in verse 5. And so this is, this is us. Us, okay, this is uh, us girls now. You know, you've ever heard that expression. Okay, this is this is a very very real practical application of chapter one, particularly I think for the ministry that uh, the majority of this, this room are about. And, and by the way, uh, I would say to you that if you are not a preacher, and I know not everybody is. Uh, you're still part of this. And that's one of the reasons that it's important for us to understand 
Paul talking about this when he's writing to the church at Corinth. Preaching is an act of worship. Preaching is an act of worship, not just for the preacher, but for the listeners to preaching. Those who hear and receive the Word of God uh, are part in the community of faith of the preaching event. Let's go back over to Nehemiah uh, chapter 8 in the Old Testament and look at the role of the Word in worship. The people hear the word when Nehemiah, I mean, Ezra gets up and he reads from the book of the law. And they stand up and they raise their hands and they bless God and they say amen. And then they bow their faces to the ground. And none of that is in response to musical worship. All of it is in response to the preached word. All of it is in response to Nehemiah 8, 8. A summary verse that says they read from the book in the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And so everything is God reveals himself in the person of Jesus Christ through the preaching of his word. And, and, and those of us, those of us who preach, we get to be worship leaders in the preaching event. But preaching is it belongs to the community of faith. And so this is important for all of us, but I do want you to understand, I think he's talking about his preaching. And so there's some very important uh, things for us to see as those who proclaim the word of God in application of chapter one. You've got to lose the chapter division here. You've got to ignore chapter two. You've got to ignore the verse divisions. You know, those were added later, Right. Uh, they weren't part of the inspiration of Scripture. We're very thankful for them. They help us find things and navigate, you know, passages of Scripture and get to them and praise God for them. But they weren't part of inspired Scripture. And, and, and most of the time, uh, the chapter divisions help us uh, because they are in places that clearly indicate, a, you know, a shift in thought and a new direction and that type of thing. Sometimes... Sometimes they deceive us if we're, we're not careful because what's being said at the beginning of a new chapter is, is uh, just a continuation of what came at the end of the last chapter. And, and I think that you have that here in these first five verses in chapter 2. It's very, very important that we understand that what's said here is Paul's application of what he was talking about in chapter 1 to his preaching. And therefore, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I think, to our preaching. And so what I want to do is I want to call your attention to Paul's application, just thinking about it from three different standpoints. I want to show you his priority, which must be our priority if... If we believe chapter 1, if we believe this about the wisdom of God in Christ, if we believe this about God's power, if we believe this about God's glory, if we believe this about the superiority of the gospel, the wisdom of God over the, the philosophy and the wisdom of the world, if we believe those things, then we're compelled to apply uh, that the, the way that, that Paul did. 
So I want to show you his priority. I want to show you his power, which has got to be our power. And I want to show you his purpose, which must be our purpose. In fact, I want to start at that point. I, I don't know how this happened. I feel like I need to apologize to you for it because I know I, um, I didn't do a traditional, okay, this verse and then this next verse and this next verse in chapter 1. I'm going to do a little bit more of that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. But actually, I want to start at the back. I want to start at, at, at the end of this passage and, and, and begin with um, uh, helping us to think about what Paul was after, his purpose. And I, I, I would simply summarize it this way, and that is that Paul's purpose and our purpose must be the glory of God. It must be the glory of God. Now, if you look at verse 5, I, I referenced this in the first message. There's a purpose clause. Everything comes to this place right here. Here is why Paul is doing verses 1 through 4. Here is why he acted in Corinth, uh, how he's describing in verses 1 through 4. Here's, here's why Paul was applying all of chapter 1 to his preaching when he came to Corinth. One simple statement. So that, in verse 5, your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, this is not rocket science, brothers. I mean, it's a, you don't have to make more out of this you know, than it is. Uh, Paul is he's, he's taking the same concepts that he talked about in chapter 1. He's taking the same idea. He's taking the same strategy of God in putting this gospel together. And he's simply saying, this is why I preached the way I did. This is why I did what I did. So why I didn't do what I didn't do. So that this would be in game. And in game would be that God gets the glory. This, this, this passage, though that verse right there, verse 5, is connected back to verse 29 in chapter 1, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It is connected to verse 31 in the, the, the summary of, of Jeremiah 9, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. It is connected to verse 30 when he's saying, it's because of him. It's not because of you, it's not because of me, it's not because of Peter, it's not because of any philosophy of the world, it's not because of your favorite preacher, it is because of Him. You are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so this all goes back to the wisdom of God in choosing a foolish message and a foolish means of proclaiming that message and foolish people like us so that when supernatural stuff happens, otherworldly stuff happens and the dust settles, there can only be one legitimate response. And that is people say, what a God. I'm going with Him. I'm trusting Him. Now, Beloved, this is, is such, it is such a real, relevant, practical issue that really, it, it, it really, I think, begin, you know, it, 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 it searches the depths of our hearts. I know it does mine. 
You know, we, we throw around the term glory of God. It just kind of becomes a, you know, a saying, you know, well, somebody says something, we say glory to God. We sing it in our songs, we preach it in our sermons, and we know theologically that that's what needs to happen for the reasons we've already talked about. But I'm going to tell you as a preacher, as a preacher, there, there is a, a very real tension, and I wish I could tell you today that I struggled with it as a young preacher, but I've mastered it at 62 years old after having, do, after having done this for you know 35 years or so. But I can't tell you that. I'm going to tell you I still struggle. I still struggle with my motive in preaching, in what I want to happen. You say, don't you want God to be glorified? Yes, of course I do. I want God to be glorified. But I also want people to like my preaching. And I also want people to compliment my preaching. And I also love hearing, well, there's nothing wrong with this, you know, of, 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 of people talking about how much they benefited from my preaching. And if I'm honest with you, then I got to tell you that sometimes that second motive, it, it, it takes first place above the theological motive. It, it, it takes first place above the motive that, look, I don't care whether they I don't care whether they really liked what I said or thought it was really done well or, you know, I, I, whether they complimented as long, as long as when the dust settles, they say, that's a great God and I'm trusting him. I'm going with him. This is a real point of battle. I mentioned the rock star preacher culture. I think we... We're not the first to live in it. The Corinthians did. We definitely are ones who live in it. It's been exacerbated by media and technology and the accessibility of sermons and accessibility to great preachers, publication, all of that. And sometimes the rock star preacher mentality is the fault of the preacher. He's after that. He wants that. And he leverages everything in his ministry and even in his sermon making to, to get that. He wants that to be, you know, that what, what, what his ministry is about. But all of us know that it's not, it's not all the time the fault of the preacher. Um, it, it, it didn't seem to be that way in Corinth, at least in this particular situation. I mean, you think about the guys that were on that list back there in verse 12. You know, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Well, surely those guys were not leveraging uh, for a platform. Surely those guys didn't have different theologies. Surely those guys had pure motives in this, and yet this was still a problem. Why? Because, why, Paul is at least one of the reasons he's writing to these believers in Christ because they weren't listening through the lens of the gospel. It wasn't that the gospel was not always being preached. Sometimes it was people are not listening through the lens of the gospel. And so we begin as listeners to put preachers on pedestals and make rock stars out of them when, when they themselves are not you know, are, are not necessarily pursuing this. So this, this whole idea of in-game, of the purpose 
of uh, we see in our preaching and what we're after. It, it beckons us to deep soul searching, but it also beckons us to shepherd our people to be those who look at life and listen to preaching through the lens of the gospel. So Paul wanted this as in game. This was his goal. He, his purpose was the glory of God. He wanted chapter 1, verses 29 through 31 to happen. He wanted supernatural stuff to happen through his preaching. And when it did, he wanted people saying, I want to trust that God. I want to put my faith in him. I, 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 want, I want to go with him. Not, man, what a preacher. Man, what a sermon. And, and, and we know, we know this, this end game is not always, we can't always gauge how we feel, right? You know about it. I mean, all of us have been there, right? You know, you, you've been there and you, you think, you know, man, I just, I crashed and burned. I mean, I, you know, sometimes I'm preaching and in my mind, you know, I know I'm, I'm continuing to say words, but in my mind, I'm thinking, why didn't somebody just go ahead and shoot me and get this over with, you know? <laughs> and, and I, man, I don't, I, I don't want to look at the sermon. I don't want to keep that sermon outline. I, you know, I just want to throw everything away. And man, that was just, okay, shooting blanks there, you know, no, no. And then only to find out later. Only to find out later how God, how God used that in somebody's life to bring about spiritual, supernatural trans, you know, transformation. But the other side is true also, right? Many times we think, man, I killed that, you know. <laughs> Which probably, you know, is a, is a mixed metaphor. <laughs> Man, I knocked it out of the park. I felt good. I felt like I was flowing. I just, you know, it's, I was just confident and, you know, felt like I said I needed to say. And, and then, you know, not that we were looking for it immediately, maybe, but nothing, you know, we don't ever know. And we won't always know. I get that. But just like, you know, I did, did God use that? It's, this is not based on how we feel. But it is based upon a heart condition. Is this, is this what we're after? Are we driven by this purpose? And that is we truly, we truly, deep in our hearts, when we put our heads on our pillows at night, we want this to be in game. Whether they ever even noticed that we were the one that preached the sermon or not. We want God to be glorified. And listen to me, there's no... There's no, maybe from a human standpoint, greater way for him to be glorified than people to put their trust in him. For people to acknowledge who he is. And people to say, give you my life. I'm surrendering to you. You're worth it. This was his purpose. It has to be our purpose. So let's go back to the top. Let me show you his priority. Because basically what you have in verses 1 through 4 then is Paul saying, okay, here's what I did and I didn't do in order for that to happen, that purpose to happen. Well, I hope Paul's priority and your priority and mine doesn't surprise you. His priority simply was the cross of Christ. 
You can see how this is just this the application of what he said in verse 1. So in, verse, uh, in, in chapter 1. So in, in, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, I, I think Paul is coming out and he is, he's just simply saying, I did that. What I just, when, I, when I came to you preaching, that's what my priority was. What I just talked about in verse 1. It was the cross of Christ. Now, I think when you look at verses 1 and 2, uh, basically Paul tells us something he didn't do in verse 1 and then something he did do in verse 2 to accomplish that priority, to feature the cross of Christ. And those two things have to be kept together, okay? So let me show you what he didn't do. In verse 1, he says, when I came to you, brothers... Didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I know some translations say mystery of God. I, I really don't think whichever way we go there has any bearing on the meaning of the passage of Scripture. In fact, ultimately, I think both of them are referring to the same thing. It's really interesting. Paul is not building a case here for bringing the testimony of God. He's just making the assumption. <laughs> He's just stating it as, as a fact. Of course, this is what I did. I brought to you the testimony of God. I think this is somewhat of a side note, but let me, uh, you know, let me speak uh, to you as as men I know who value biblical exposition. I, I think that we have some of the roots of exposition in a statement like that. Paul says, when I came to you bringing the testimony of God, let me translate that for you. When I came to you just telling you what God said. And that's exposition. That's what we do. When we take a text of scripture and we expose its meaning, its intended meaning, people, we, we are saying, here's what God said. And, and that's at the heart of this. I think it was clear, Pastor Jim, you know, he, he said that, you know, in, in his message a little bit ago, expounding the scriptures. Well, Paul just says, I came to you telling you what God said. Giving you what, you know, God's message. But he says in doing that, there was something that he didn't do. He said, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now, just for the sake of time, I, I want to cut, you know, to the chase here and tell you that, you know, that a lot of times, you know, Paul's statements here have been associated with, and there may be some relationship to the sophist of the day who had a particular way of, you know, of, of formulating thoughts and building arguments and, you know, a system of, of wisdom, and they certainly were at play. Others look at this and say, okay, he's just talking about the wisdom of the world in general. I I think that, that Paul's really thinking more simply than that. Uh, the, the word speech is just talking about the words that he had. The word wisdom would be how he formulated and manipulated those words to present them. And we have to be careful at this point, I think, to look to, as if to hear Paul say that he didn't come with either one of those two things. Because actually he did. He came with words. You don't write 13 books in the New Testament and not have some words going on. The guy had some words. And sometimes, you know, we talk about Pauline sentences, right? The sentences just go on and on and on without any punctuation, you know, no period, you know. When is he going to get to the end? The guy had some words going on. And believe it or not, he had some wisdom. 
He even claims that in other parts of his epistles, that he came to them with wisdom, the wisdom of God that's being spoken above in chapter 1. He brought that to them. So what was he saying he didn't do? Well, I think the key word is in the little adjective that is translated in my English translation as lofty. It's a word in the language of the New Testament that basically means to rise above. So it carries the implication to rise above and and be supreme over. And the word can be used positively or negatively, depending upon context. It's used positively in the book of Revelation for the Lord Jesus Christ, who rises above and reigns. I think Paul's using it negatively here. He's not saying I didn't come to you with any speech or any wisdom. He's saying I didn't come to you with any lofty speech or wisdom. Speech and wisdom that I allowed to rise above. Listen to me. The the testimony of God. He says, I came to you bringing to you the testimony of God. But what I didn't do is allow anything to rise above and reign supreme over that. Our preaching students, especially in the laboratory course, many of you went to seminary or Bible college, may have taken a similar course where you preach in class and you get feedback from professors and, you know, and your, your, your peers, you know, fellow students. One of the things that we tell them is, brothers, listen, we're not doing this course because we, we want to make one another better orators. We're not doing this because we think by being better orators, we can make the gospel more effective and more powerful. We can't. And I want to tell you the same thing. You can't do anything to make the word of God, his wisdom, his gospel more powerful. However, you can distract from it. That's why we do a course like that. That's why it's important for us to think about the content of our messages and the delivery of our messages. That's why it's important for us to think about how we decorate our platform, how we dress when we preach. It's important for us to think about everything we do in the preaching event because God, in His sovereignty, has 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 ordained something that in this preaching event thing that quite honestly is a train wreck waiting to happen. You ever thought about this? You know, God says, uh, okay, here's my supernatural, inerrant, infallible word. And then he hands it to you, an errant, fallible, natural creature and says, you go interpret this and you go proclaim it to people. That's a train wreck waiting to happen. But it was his idea. And you know what that means? Anything his idea, his grace is sufficient for us to be able to do. And we can do it with incredible confidence and boldness. But we have to respect. We have to respect the nature of that event and realize because we are errant, fallible natural creatures we can't make the word of god more powerful than it is but it is possible for us to distract from it i mean if you go back in chapter one and you know paul says lest the cross of christ be emptied of its power if it was possible for the corinthians to do something to think something that would rob the gospel of its power then certainly the same thing is true in the preaching event 
It's possible. It's possible that you and I, as stewards of this gospel, can have it and communicate it, but by virtue, by virtue of the way we put it together, by virtue of the things that we say, by virtue of the way we present ourselves, for us to distract from it. And that's why it's important for us to continue to grow as preachers of the gospel. Not because we want to become greater orators, but because we want to, we want to make sure that we stay out of the way of this, pow- this powerful message that we're serving up. I think that's at the heart of what Paul is saying. I brought this testimony of God. I brought this gospel. But I was careful not to let the words that I used and the way that I, I, I manipulated those words to rise above and, and, and reign over the message. In other words, to distract from it, to pull away from it. So what did he do? That's what he didn't do. What did he do in order to maintain this priority? Well, that's what verse 2 is, I think. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So I'm, I'm bringing this message and I'm making sure that I don't, uh, in the way that I present it, the way that I present myself, I think this is content. It's, it's got to, you know, if it's, it, it's got to include delivery, you know, as well. I'm, I'm not letting anything distract from this. I want to serve it up in its, its simplicity, its purity. I want to proclaim it. So what did Paul say? Uh, so what, what I did do is I made sure that what I talked about in chapter 1 was the central feature. And, and that is the cross of Christ. Now, I think when Paul talks about Jesus Christ and him crucified, and I think the same thing is true in chapter 1 when he talks about the word of the cross, he refers to the, 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 the cross. I don't think Paul is doing that at the exclusion of the resurrection. I don't even think he's doing it at the exclusion of the perfect life that he lived, you know, on this earth. I, I think he's using this term, Christ and him crucified, just like the cross of Christ to encompass the whole of the salvation event of God's redemptive activity in the person of, uh, of Christ. So he, he's not separating that out to say more about the crucifixion and less or nothing about the resurrection. I think in Paul's mind, these were all part of the same. He's simply describing them as the cross of Christ and Christ and him crucified. Now, some have taken this statement right here and done a lot of things with it. One of the things that, uh, uh, you know, has, has been done with it is to say, okay, well, Paul... You know, Paul just preached evangelistic messages. Well, we've already really talked about that. He was there 18 months, longer than a lot of pastors or churches, you know, that they, they serve in. Uh, he was uh, teaching them on a daily basis. He was in the synagogues as well as in the, you know, the, uh, the house of, of believers. And so I, I don't think you go back to Acts 18, you could really come away from the conclusion that all Paul did was evangelistic messages. And I don't think that's what he's saying here. I think what Paul was saying is that the gospel, the word of the cross, the wisdom of God, is central to everything we do in the journey of coming to Christ and living 
for Christ. I think part of that is indicated in the language here. The word crucified is in a tense in the language of the New Testament that indicates a point in time action. Okay, that something happened at a point in time. And obviously Christ was crucified. It's a historical event. There was a point in time that that happened. But the tense here uh, indicates something that happened at a point in time and its implications continue into the present. And that's really, really important. That is no small thing. That's not just, uh, you know, New Testament language studies, you know, to, you know, to provide filler or to impress anybody. It is a reminder that Christ was crucified, yes, but he continues to be the crucified one. And what I would say to you is the reality of Christ as the crucified one is as important for living the Christian life as it is for coming to the Christian life and getting your sins forgiven. And we forget that sometimes. We think the proclamation of the gospel and the proclamation of the cross of Christ is, is something that that's what people need to get saved, to come. And certainly it is. And we're, we're, we rejoice that God in His grace gave us the opportunity by drawing us to Himself, choosing us, calling us uh, to an embrace of what Christ has done. But was it not Jesus that said, if you want to be my disciple, you need to take up your cross and in Luke's version, daily, He said, and come follow me. Was it not Paul that says... Whatever gain I've had, I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and, and, and the fellowship of His suffering, becoming, listen to it, becoming like Him in His death. And beloved, listen to me, this is something that gets lost in a lot of contemporary preaching. We want to leave the crucifixion of Christ as a historical event. We know it. And people need to embrace what Jesus did for them on the cross in order to get saved. But now that you're a Christian, we, we, let's talk about what's relevant, what your felt needs are, what you think you need to make the day, and, and, and how to have a happy marriage, and manage your finances well, and do this and that. And listen, you can talk about that stuff all day long and never ever compel people to the crucified life. And Paul said, I didn't do that. I didn't let anything distract from that, but what I did was I preached Christ and Him crucified. And I think he was talking both about its implications for coming to Jesus and getting your sins forgiven and getting the hope of heaven. But I think he was talking about everything that it takes to live the Christian life. I mean, don't you, don't you want the husbands in your church to look at their wives through the lens of Ephesians chapter 5? Don't you want them to think about their marriages as running videos of the gospel? Them representing the person of Christ and how he loved the church. Wives representing the church in their alignment of themselves under the leadership of their husband. You, know, you understand that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the gospel. Don't you want, don't you want your people to forgive one another? Tender-hearted, be kind to one another, Paul would say in Ephesians 4. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. 
as God in Christ forgave you. Don't you want them to treat one another and relate one another through the lens of the gospel? Don't you, don't you want them to give through the lens of the gospel? Not because the church needs it, not because it pays your salary, but because, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, because that's what Jesus did. He gave everything. And you just go on through the New Testament, and it's amazing how much the New Testament authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit call upon Christian to a morality, to an ethic, to a practical righteousness and a holiness that is based on the crucified Christ. It's the motivation. It drives us. It shapes how we look at life. And Paul says, when I came to you, I didn't let anything get in that way, but I made sure. I made sure that the gospel, the gospel was what featured in my preaching. Unadulterated gospel because it is not only that which brings you to the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life, but it is that which enables you to travel the journey of sanctification and live the Christian life. This gospel, this message of the crucified Christ is absolutely critical, not just for the unbelievers who are not in here yet, but for the daily lives of every one of our people. How dare we? How dare we give them practical application that we don't help them see it in the context of the crucified life, of the crucified Christ? So this is what Paul did. That was his priority. It must be ours. And then the power. We finish with this, and this is where Kyle, I, I think, really, really helped us. It's got to be our power. So what is this power? Listen to me very carefully. It's the strength of the Spirit. Priority is the cross of Christ. The purpose is the glory of God. But the power to do this is a power that only the Spirit can give. So Paul says in verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That's another verse I'm really glad is in the Bible, aren't you? Glad it's there. Another one of those on the list. Kind of like Paul saying in Romans, I, I do the things I don't want to do. I can't do the things that I, you know, I, I, you know I, I, I should do. And, you know, woe is me. And I say, Yes, I can ad- I'm glad that's in the Bible. Yes. Here's another one. I don't think Paul was just blowing smoke. Thank you, Pastor Jim, for helping us see this and taking our, calling our attention to Luke 8, I mean to Acts 18 and the words of our Lord and encouraging him. I, I think Paul was being honest. Well, what other conclusion would we come to? That he's lying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? He's... Just doing theological rhetoric here and literary filler. No, I think the guy was scared sometimes. And I think he wept sometimes. I think he trembled sometimes. And here he identifies with verse 26 in chapter 1. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. 
Paul says, I can identify with that. Kyle mentioned 2 Corinthians 4, 7. This, we have its treasure in earthen vessels. Why? So that the excellency would be in God and not in us. Right? Weakness. No strength. Trembling. Fear. Being scared sometimes. Paul said that was me. In addition to that, first part of verse 4, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. In my English translation, language of the New Testament means enticing, manipulative, persuasive words, strategies, the way the world would think about the philosophies of how you be happy and, you know, and how you be prosperous and, and, and all of that. And Paul says, I, my, my word, I didn't have those, those kinds of words. So, I was weak, emotionally, physically, cried a lot, trembled a lot, didn't have persuasive speech. But what did he have? But he says at the end of verse 4, and brothers, don't miss this, demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Language of the New Testament, the word translated demonstration is, is talking about the most rigorous proof of all. I mean, the the, 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 the most evidence that could be put on the table to prove something. And you know what it was? It, it was the awareness of, it was the, the, the reality of the power of the Spirit of God. Put these two things together. Weakness, fear, much trembling. Not a lot of enticing words, being really persuasive. But in the midst of that, there is this demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And brothers, this, this is lashed to what our brother was talking about earlier. It's lashed to a principle that God's been operating under from a long time ago. And that's a principle of strength through weakness. His power through our weakness. Israel's looking for a new king. Samuel goes down to Jesse's house to find one. What does he do? He does the beauty pageant thing. He run them through there, biggest, baddest, handsomest, strongest. Why? Because that's what Saul was. That's what the world, that's what the people thought a king was. One by one, God marked them off. Samuel's confused. God says to him, don't look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I've refused him. For you see, the Lord doesn't see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Proverbs 31, woman, charm is deceitful, beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. That's not what the billboards say. That's not what the advertisements say. They tell our ladies, ladies, in all of your getting, get charm. Whatever you have to do, get beauty. And all the time, God's saying, here's a, here's a woman or my favor rests on a woman who fears me. Zechariah, Zerubbabel was intimidated by the prospects of leading Israel to rebuild the temple and the exiles were coming back. So God sends Zechariah and he says, hey, it's not by your might. It's not by your power. But it's by my spirit, says the Lord. Then Jesus comes on the scene in the New Testament talking crazy stuff. I mean, messed up. 
If you want to be first, you got to be what? Last. If you want to be a leader, you got to be a servant. You want to live, you got to die. That's not the world's wisdom. Paul got it though. He got this calling thing of not many of you were handsome, not many of you were strong and powerful and influential. He got it. He, he got it in weakness and fear and much trembling. He got it with the earthen vessel thing. He understood the wisdom of God. And maybe it reaches its pinnacle in the end of 2 Corinthians with that thorn in the flesh thing. There, Paul prayed three times it would go away. And what did the Lord say? My grace is sufficient for you. N another way to say it, my power, my help, my strength is sufficient for you because you see my strength is made perfect. It's brought to its fullest. Listen, brothers, in your weakness. And when Paul heard that, he said, whoa, if that's the case, bring it on. Most gladly will I rather boast in my infirmities. Why? That the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in, in needs and persecutions and distresses and reproaches for Christ's sake. Why? Because when I am weak, that's when I'm strong. And this brother said it right. The philosophies of the world are being adopted, not just in church planning. But across the board, in Christian ministry, in church strategy, in preaching, in pastoral ministry, we think so much of the time that the rule is strength comes from strength. So figure out how to get stronger. I do a lot of consulting with search teams. More than once I've discovered you know, them using a tool called the Strength Finder. Not here to hate on the Strength Finder. I'm sure there's some benefit for it. But I just, I just want you to think about just the big picture mentality. We need a guy that can do this. We need a guy that can do this. Who's strong in this area and strong in this area. And he's an expert in this. And he's, he can do this. He's a skill. He's an X-factor guy. X-factor guy. <laughs> I'm going, for some reason, I'm getting you two guys mixed up. Sorry. <laughs> and, and without realizing it, we buy into that. That philosophy. That power and effectiveness comes through strength. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, man, well, what does that mean? Do we just need to dumb it down? No, you see, the problem with that is it's just an admission that we think we're strong and we would have to make ourselves weak. You know what the principle of strength through weakness is and strength through the power of the Spirit is the realization that you don't bring anything to the table. And I don't bring anything to the table. And we need a help that is other than ourselves. It is otherworldly. I, I really don't care what you call it. We can argue about words like anointing and about unction. I think probably the best biblical word is in the Luke-Acts narrative, the filling of the Spirit. But regardless of what you call it, brothers, listen, don't, don't underestimate the reality of the help of God's Spirit in the entire preaching, mo uh, preaching event, but in particularly the preaching moment.
I think that's what Paul's talking about. I, I didn't have persuasive words. I didn't get up and speak persuasively. But what was going on was something otherworldly. God lifted my preaching above the natural. He lifted it above the human. And there was something going on in it that, that caused people not necessarily to understand it all. It doesn't mean they all responded to it positively. But, but people that were present knew something was going on. I'm hearing a voice that is other than that guy standing up there. Because what happened with Jesus in the synagogue at Capernaum? They listened to him and they said, this guy's got an authority that we've never, we've never seen before, we've never heard before. I think it's what happened to those disciples on the road to Emmaus when just Jesus disappeared out of their midst after expounding to them from all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. Do you remember what they said? Man, did you hear that expository sermon? Did you see the way he developed the outline? Did you, did you get the illustrations that he used? No. They said, didn't our hearts burn within us? While he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us. Brothers, pray for that in your preaching. But even more than that, depend on it. Depend on the strength of the Spirit. When Jesus said the Spirit was going to come, one of the things that he told the disciples about the DNA of the Spirit is, he's going to make much of me. One of the main reasons we need to embrace the gospel and hold on to it and proclaim it and preach Christ-centered, gospel-driven messages is because God has attached his Spirit and his power to that event. And if we want God's power, if we want God's power, we need to make sure that we're preaching Christ and Him crucified. And only that. And we're doing it in utter dependence of the Spirit, on the Spirit of God. Let's pray together. God, help us. In our dependence upon You, help us, Lord, um, The realization that you've given us the message we're to preach and you've provided, God, you've provided the resource to lift it above the human. Lift it above our means, our capabilities. Pray for myself, I pray for these brothers. God, that this would be the case. This would be the case in our preaching to the end that people would put their faith in you and not in us. And that you would be glorified in that. In Jesus' name, amen.